Hello all, this is History of Religion Podcast, and I am J.A. Graham, your host. Today is episode 23 of the History of Christianity series titled, Constantine's Wake. Last time we covered how Constantine led the new Christian empire into what he thought was a united church and imperial unity. Yet, there were many reactions to the new world order that will not be as unifying as Constantine had hoped they would be. Rodney Stark is a sociologist who studied the rise of Christianity and authored the book called The Rise of Christianity. In it, he analyzes how the early church from Christ to Constantine rose based on middle and upper classes of cities. Christianity had triumphed over paganism because of a few factors according to Stark. One of them being the Christians did not practice planned families, so with a lack of birth control, there were more children born into the faith than in paganism. Another was Christianity also gave women a role in worship in the early church, so many women joined and allowed a more even ratio of men to women, so there were more children. Christians embraced martyrdom and won people over instead of fighting in open warfare against the empire, as the Jews had done. And finally, when there was sickness, the Christians would stay in the cities and help the poor and sick, winning them over. How successful was this growth? Well, in the first chapter of the book of Acts in the New Testament, it is noted that there are around 120 Christians immediately after the crucifixion of Christ. Then, in the fourth chapter, that number has grown to around 5,000. These numbers were probably more rhetorical in nature than accurate descriptions, but perhaps a thousand or two Christians at the time after the death of Christ. This would have been around 0.0017% of the population of the Roman Empire. The numbers really do not grow all that much until 200 AD, which most historians believe to end up at around 200,000, or 0.36% of the population. However, something happens in the second half of the 3rd century, and Christianity takes off. By 300, the time of Constantine, the number is over 6 million, or 10% of the population was Christian in the Roman Empire. This is a miracle-level growth for the religion. Stark has his ideas for why it grew the way it did, but they are far from the final say in the matter. By 350, the number is over 33 million, or 56% of the population, so 40% of the Roman Empire is converted to Christianity in just 50 years. Constantine's reign had a lot to do with it, of course. It was now beneficial for Romans to be Christian, and so the church grew like never before. There were three kingdoms that had declared Christianity as their religion before Rome. We have mentioned Armenia and Ethiopia already, and the third was Georgia, which was converted by a Cappadocian woman named Nino. We have already noted that Constantine's embrace of Christianity meant that there were many enemies of Rome that no longer would give refuge to those Christians. This was mainly in the east, though, in the old Persian empires, where Christianity had been strongest up until the point in the areas of modern-day Turkey, Israel, Syria, and etc. So this combination of new converts and those in the east becoming suspicious of Christianity results in some interesting changes for the demographics of the new religion. The most important is that there are immigrants who will eventually overwhelm the Roman Empire and are settling in at this time. They are called the barbarians, or modern-day northern Europeans as such as Germanic tribe. These immigrants begin to embrace Christianity under Constantine. Also, all of the new converts made some of the Christians mad. Sort of like when your favorite band becomes popular, and then you have to separate yourself as the more dedicated fan who was there at the beginning than all these newcomers. So Christianity had this issue as well. Many of the converts 
or just in it for the social and political benefits. Many had money and began to buy their way in, and there were simply too many to properly catechize them, as had been the process for hundreds of years up until this point. So there was a reaction to all this growth, and it was the creation of monasticism. Now, there had been Christians before Constantine who felt like they needed to get away from it all. Most of the time, it was in exile or escaping persecution. Origen lived a platonic life in extreme asceticism, and virgins and windows were already dedicating their life to the church. The Gnostics, who by this time were on the ropes, still influenced the church by denying the world and physical desires. There was easy justification in the words of Paul in the New Testament to live a life of denial to the self as well. All of this was the framework upon which Christians who saw the church as invaded by the world in all directions under the rule of Constantine turned to as an escape from the now corrupted church as they saw it. The church seemed to be pushing against it a bit actually though. The Council of Nicaea declared that anyone who had castrated himself could not be in the clergy, something that must have been a trend at the time. This made those who felt like the church was falling into the world desperate to get out. The first monastics that we have record of were in the Egyptian desert, where people just wanted to be alone. The word for monk comes from the Greek monakos, which literally means solitary. Christians there wanted to be out of the chaos of society and sought peace in the desert. There are two Christians traditionally given the title as the first monks, even though it is impossible to know who was really first. Arguably, if they were good monks, we would never even hear about them in the first place. The two monks that we know of were Anthony and Paul. Anthony was born on the Nile into a Coptic family that was well off. His parents died early, and the inheritance led to a comfortable life for Anthony. However, when he read the Gospels, he fell under conviction of his wealth. He gave everything he had away to the poor and fled to the desert, setting his sister up with a small fund and sending her off to a convent, which I'm sure she appreciated. Later on, he felt remorse for leaving his old life behind, and so he would fast and sometimes not eat for several days. After a few years, he decided that he had learned enough, and he left the small monastic community to go live in a tomb in a cemetery. It is important to note that prior he had been living with other monks, which means that he definitely was not the first monk. After he moved to the tomb in a cemetery, he had many visions there of demons, and then God told him to go further away to defeat the demons, so he decided to relocate from the cemetery to an abandoned fort at the age of 35. Obviously, the story is pretty interesting to us today, so it would have been just as interesting, if not more, during Anthony's time. So people found him and sought wisdom from him, like a sage or oracle from pagan times. He did go to Alexandria a few times as well. One time was during the Diocletian persecution. Anthony went to Alexandria to offer himself up to be killed as a martyr, but the authorities thought that he wasn't worth their time because he looked so pathetic. He returned years later during the Arian controversy to debate the Arians, even though he was not well educated. He died in 356 and influenced many to take up the monastic life and set an example for how it was to be lived. He caught the attention of a man named Athanasius, who wrote a biography of his life, which is where all of this information comes from. Athanasius was an assistant to Alexander of Alexandria who debated the Arians at the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius will eventually be the Bishop of Alexandria as well. So it was because of him that Anthony is known as one of the most important and first monastics. The same situation occurred with another monk named Paul. 
he caught the attention of an influential bishop named Jerome, who will tell people of his life and inspire others to take up the monastic life as well. Both of these monks were a bit before Constantine, but they set the example for the masses who would later influx the monastic life in a reaction to the rule of Constantine. Exaggerated numbers from travelers at the time are that there were tens of thousands of monastics in the deserts of Egypt and in Cappadocia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Cappadocia is the place where they dug tunnels and caves into the mountainsides, created a complex community of monastic societies. These monastics were against the new church order and mostly thought that being ordained was the worst situation for them. At this time, Christian ministers began to be called priests under the new Constantine structure. The monastics lived simple lives, where some would grow gardens and others would make simple products like baskets to be sold. Yet over time, there were simply too many people trying to live the monastic life, and the solitary aspect gave way to what is called communal monasticism, or cenobotic in Greek something that Anthony had tried to avoid all of his life as people sought him out to be taught and gain wisdom under him. This transformation from solitary to communal monasticism occurs in the middle of the 4th century, so we will leave it here for now and pick up on it later. Earlier in the episode, it was mentioned how the barbarians were beginning to embrace Christianity during the reign of Constantine, but they embraced a certain kind of Christianity, specifically Arianism. You would think that the Council of Nicaea would have put an end to Arianism since Constantine ordered the imperial crackdown on it and banished Arius, yet it did not solve things other than on paper. In the east, there were three sects that arose in the wake of the Council of Nicaea, the Arians, the Nicenes, and the Originists. The Arians followed Arius and believed that Jesus was the created being, but they were a very small group. The second group were the Nicenes, or those who agreed with the Nicene Creed, they too were a minority. The majority were the Originists, who followed the theology of Origen and believed that the Son was not created, but was inferior to the Father. Eusebius of Caesarea was amongst this club. Arius did not give up either. His good friend Eusebius of Nicomedia got Arius out of exile in 328, just three years after Nicaea. Constantine was not a great Christian to typical standards. He killed his son and wife out of suspicion, and he would not be baptized until right before his death. The reason was that the theology of the time was that baptism forgave the individual of all their sins. So if one was baptized and then sinned, then they were in a bit of a trouble. So the best bet was to wait until the end of one's life and then get all of the sins out at once and not leave too much time to mess up things in the end by sinning again. Yet at his death, Constantine did something else that was a bit crazy. In 337, he died. But before he died, a few years, he converted to Arianism. Yes, that is right. Not only this, but he was able to get Athanasius exiled. Athanasius had become the Bishop of Alexandria in 328 and took up the task of fighting the Arians from his predecessor, Alexander of Alexandria. Athanasius fought hard, but was eventually exiled and Constantine converted to Arianism. In 339, Eusebius of Nicomedia became the Bishop of Constantinople. Thus, at the end of Constantine's reign, the future of the church did not look so united. It was Athanasius versus the rest of Christianity, it seemed. Luckily for him, though, Arius did die in 336, and it was a violent one. We will end the episode with a quote about his death. So, quote, As he approached the place called Constantine's Forum, where the column of Porphyry is erected, a terror arising from the remorse of conscience seized Arius, and with the terror a violent relaxation of the bowels. 
He therefore inquired whether there was a convenient place near, and being directed to the back of Constantine's forum, he hastened thither. Soon after a faintness came over him, and together with the evacuation his bowels protruded, followed by a copious hemorrhage and the descent of the smaller intestines. Moreover, portions of his spleen and liver were brought off in the effusion of blood, so that he almost immediately died. End quote. So yeah, he was probably poisoned, and things keep getting more interesting from there. So join me next time here on the History of Religion podcast.